I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones, or as Frank Kermode once referred to me, the implausibly named Tom Jones. And today we're looking back over the life and career, or careers, of Frank Kermode, a towering figure of 20th century literary criticism, prolific reviewer and broadcaster, memoirist, and indirectly responsible for the founding of the London Review of Books. Later in the podcast, we'll hear Mary Kay Wilmers, the editor of the LRB, in conversation with Andrew Hagen, talking about Kermode's relationship with the paper. We used to call him SSF, Sly Sir Frank. But first I'm joined by Stefan Collini, Professor of Intellectual History and English Literature at Cambridge, and a frequent contributor to the LRB, if not quite as frequent as Kermode himself was, though there aren't many who can match his total of 216 pieces for the paper. Stefan Collini has a piece in the current issue entitled Early Kermode, which explores the work Kermode was doing in the 1950s in academia, journalism and broadcasting. Hello, Stefan, and thank you very much for joining me. Hello, Tom. The Sense of an Ending, published in 1967 and still probably Kermode's most famous book, consists of six lectures delivered at Bryn Mawr College in 1965. The first lecture is entitled, in one of his typical dry jokes, The End, so I thought we could perhaps follow that model and begin at the end with his immensely productive last years, or last decades rather, in Cambridge. And he retired, if that's the word, to Cambridge in the mid-1980s, which I think is about the same time that you joined the English faculty there. That's right, yes. Frank retired from his Cambridge chair in 1982 and went and taught for three years in Columbia in the States. But he kept a house in Cambridge and then he moved back here and thereafter... Uh, lived in Cambridge from the mid-80s onwards. I didn't come to a job in the Cambridge English faculty until 1986, but in fact I didn't meet him immediately. And one of the things that's rather peculiar, and it turned out in the end to be rather touching about our relationship, was that we only became good friends when he was already 80. And so uh, we had 10 years where I got to know him really quite well, of course, with a kind of poignancy to it, a sweetness as well, to do with him being 30 years older than me and him being in his 80s, though a wonderfully uh, vigorous and uh, entirely more than compassmentous man in his 80s. But so I only knew him well in that last decade. And in those last years at Cambridge, he wasn't really affiliated with the university anymore. I mean, he was still an honorary fellow at King's, wasn't he? But he didn't have anything to do with the university particularly. No, that's right. He he lived here and he did have that honorary attachment at King's, but he hadn't enjoyed his time at Cambridge. We can uh, talk about that if you like, and left with some sense of bitterness about it. And so he didn't, I think, really want uh, an attachment, any f- kind of formal attachment with the university itself. So although he 
lived in Cambridge, as he was keen to say himself, he was not really of Cambridge. And he'd resigned in, in 1982. It was over the, the appointment or the non-appointment of Colin McCabe to a permanent position at the university, is that right? Yes, although I think that was the culmination of dissatisfaction on his part, really. He, he'd come to the chair in Cambridge in 1974, having been a professor in several other British universities, and most recently University College London. And as a professor in most of those universities, he had quite a lot of power as head of department to get things done. And at UCL, he had famously reorganised the syllabus and set up a graduate seminar and, and lots of things, and, and in fact said he was very happy there. He often thought of that as one of the happiest periods of his professional life. But for whatever reason, he put it down to, with his characteristic irony, to weakness and vanity. He accepted the chair in Cambridge and he immediately found that as a, an established professor in Cambridge, he didn't have any of the powers he'd had elsewhere. The faculty was run in a more, possibly you could say, democratic, possibly you could say arcane, possibly you could say obstructive way. But in any event, there were a whole labyrinth of committees and subcommittees to get things done, and Frank couldn't get anything very much done. So he'd already had a mounting dissatisfaction with all of that and found a lot of the people who taught there were uh, rather conservative in their intellectual and literary tastes. And then, as you say, in 1981, the whole question of whether um, Colin McCabe, a young assistant lecturer, should be upgraded to the status of a full lecturer, produced uh, an almighty bust-up and got into the national press and so on. And Frank felt obliged to take the side of McCabe and his allies. He thought there was something very uh, reactionary about the opposition and he wasn't going to stand for that. So he did his best to fight in favour of McCabe's case. And in a way, they lost. <laughs> and so after that, he, as he put it himself, he woke up one morning thinking... I don't have to go on doing this. And so he resigned. What was the, the disagreement about McCabe that eventually led to Kermo's resignation? I suspect no podcast would be long enough really to cover and disentangle all this. But as briefly as I can, Colin McCabe had got interested in the forms of structuralist analysis, which in other words, went below the surface of the verbal surface of, of a piece of writing, trying to look for certain kinds of deep um, structuring patterns that had been more or less pioneered by linguists and literary theorists in France in the 60s and 70s in particular. And although he, McCabe, had been appointed in the English faculty to work on the history of language, he wrote his first book on James Joyce using these structuralist approaches in a way in which the people who had initially appointed him, the more traditional members of the Cambridge English faculty, thought was not what they wanted him to be doing. This was not only something that was a bit fashionable and opaque and um, not part of the traditional syllabus, but also they thought it was not him doing his job. Now, there were, there were tendentious elements to that argument, but that, I think, was their argument against him. And so then the arcane structure of Cambridge kicks in and Colin McCabe had been appointed as an assistant lecturer, which didn't necessarily mean he would go on to become a full lecturer. The system required the creation of a new post to do that and so on to be, as they said, upgraded to it. And it all gets very arcane because then decisions about that are taken by an appointments committee, not by the faculty board. The appointments committee was packed by the people who objected to the kind of work he'd done and thought this was 
not only not filling the job, but it was the thin end of the wedge of introducing a lot of alien theory. And so they refused to do this. The faculty board tried to override them and then got into a great tangle about that. And it's through um, that imbroglio, as it were, because it spread out over several weeks, that the press got hold of it and then followed each round, each bout in this as one or other group dominated one or other of the committees. And I think several of the people who took McCabe's side, apart from liking him humanly, um, as it happened, McCabe was, while he had this uh, more junior post, he was at King's where Frank was. But apart from that, they felt, and Frank certainly felt, that there was simply a closed-mindedness among the opponents of McCabe, that they were just not seeing that there was a new approach here which was valuable and uh, fruitful, and that they were trying to keep out. So he went into bat for McCabe, uh, along with people like Raymond Williams and Stephen Heath. And Christopher Ricks, on the whole, emerged as the leader of those who took the more traditional line and refused to upgrade uh, McCabe. So it was an issue in which procedure, local politics, and the larger pattern of intellectual change in British culture and literary studies in the late 60s, early 70s, late 70s, all got wrapped up. And probably that's what gave it some of its combustible character. And pre- presumably part of the reason that it made it into the, into the national press, apart from the, sort of the, the interest of a, a bust-up among the dons, as it were, was that Frank himself was was really very famous by that point, certainly for an English professor. <laughs> yes, I, mean, I, think he, I think he was. I don't know how much of a part that played in getting it into the press. I think partly it was that it looked to be symbolic of the arrival of, as they then said, structuralism and new French approaches, so the whole question of a kind of nativist defence of traditional English literature against this foreign invasion. But you are absolutely right that by then he was, well, the best-known literary scholar, I think one could certainly say, and possibly the best-known general reviewer and writer about literature in the country. If you go back to the, to the beginning now, he was born in Douglas on the Isle of Man in 1919, and his father worked in a warehouse, his mother had been a waitress, and presumably no one in the early 1920s was expecting John, as he was then, John Frank Kermode, to end up as Professor Sir Frank Kermode, FBA, and he's clearly a very gifted child. He won a scholarship to Liverpool University in 1937. How far do you think his success was connected to, if not due to social changes in post-war Britain, the expansion of higher education and of the BBC? And Well, I think a lot of different aspects of his career were dependent on that. I think the initial step really was that of the classic scholarship boy, really. I mean, he was a very clever boy at school. He won this one scholarship that there was the University of Liverpool. But at that point, Universities in England, like Liverpool, were fairly small and traditional and had a strong sense of their provincial roots in a good way, feeling that they were part of the local community, but not, I think, such national institutions as they are now. So up till that point, he really belonged to an older pattern. I think immediately after the war, he was a beneficiary of the need for new academic staff in universities. I mean, there were quite a few people who'd fought in the war who also, like him, got a job very quickly in one aspect or another of the higher education system. Raymond Williams and Richard Hoggart and others of his contemporaries were the same. But then, I think, partly perhaps what you're alluding to, is that universities expanded a lot in the 
from the late 40s and the 50s. New universities, of course, founded in the 1960s even more. But also they became more important parts of the national culture, I think. I think more things were covered in universities, they had somewhat less traditional syllabus, more people went to them, more of the uh, academics started to figure in the press and in other media, including television, if we think of people like A.J.P. Taylor and Hugh Trevor Roper and so on, and indeed, after a while, Frank himself. So I think he was part of that period when universities grew in size and importance and had or developed quite strong overlaps with metropolitan and, as it were, non-academic literary culture. In your piece in the current issue, which is largely focused on his work in the 50s, you described finding a, an academic review he'd written in the library, but also that at that time he was, was when he was teaching at Reading and one of his colleagues was John Wayne and that he'd got him contacts the BBC and he started broadcasting. And so his journalistic career sort of began really very early, almost at at the same time as his academic career, and they developed in tandem with each other. That's partly true, I think. I mean, that's to say he he got his first academic job in 1947. He went to Reading in 1949. John Wayne was for a while a colleague at Reading, and he got him to do some talks on the radio. But at that point, I think Frank hadn't really started to do any reviewing for the, as it were, the smart London weeklies and monthlies. And one of the things that changed that situation was the great success of Frank's book, Romantic Image, which came out in 1957. Uh, A short, very stylish, striking, very readable book, which made quite an impact in academic circles, but also in non-academic circles. And I think looking at where he got asked to write and when, it's immediately after that that places like The Spectator and Encounter two of the places he wrote for quite a lot in the late 50s and early 60s, where they first picked him up and started to ask him to review. And, of course, he proved to be you know, an absolute natural at it. The literary editor of The Spectator who asked him to write, of course, was Carl Miller, who then succeeded him as the Lord Northcliffe Professor at UCL and, and then as editor of the LRB asked him to write there as well. So, that I mean, they had a very long working relationship. Oh, absolutely, yes. Carl Miller had this career in literary journalism for a long time before he moved to the chair, as you say, at UCL uh, on the New Statesman, Spectator and The Listener. And I think once he had uh, started to use Frank as a reviewer, he was one of the main people to keep commissioning pieces from him. He he, <laughs> he knew what a good find he'd made, I think. And they did have that um, astonishing facility to write. I think one year he wrote something like 20 pieces for the LRB in a, in a year while, while doing everything else. If I can just say about that, it's interesting because although the, everyone would say, I think, that his pieces are wonderfully readable and relaxed, there's an awful lot condensed into them. And I know in, from talking to him that he... I mean, what you've just said might suggest to some people that he, he, he could, as it were, just sit down and dash them off. But on, on his own account, at least, that wasn't true, that he, he took great pains over them. Um, and there, there's a famous line of William Empson, a critic he, he admired, as I do, where Empson said, well, you know, he, most of the effort was to putting in the uh, appearance of ease and I think some of that is true of Frank, too, that he, he knew a vast amount about these various things. He read the books he was writing about very carefully. But then he spent quite a lot of time making the thing 
edible for a more general audience. The influence of, of Empson, of course, is, a, is an interesting one. And he wrote perhaps more, I mean, more pieces about Empson than about any other writer, apart from Shakespeare, perhaps, certainly in the LRB. And that thing about the title of his memoir, not entitled, it's in the levels of ambiguity and multiple meaning seems a very Empsonian title especially when it's written by Sir Frank Kermode. Although I was rereading his, um, the part of his memoir that the LRB published about My Mad Captains, which is, explains where that title comes from, which I'd, I'd forgotten, that when he was in the Navy, that every week they'd queue up to get their pay. But you could very quickly forfeit your week's pay by being fined for various infractions. And if you, if you got no money at all, then it, not entitled was written next to your name. So the, the literal meaning of that title is... Uh, yeah, it was about sailors who didn't get paid when, when he was in the Navy. I think everyone who knew Frank was struck by the fact that for all that he could seem in lots of ways very relaxed and urbane, there was also an element of him which was a little wary or watchful and a feeling on his part, however justified by history, a feeling on his part that he was still something of an outsider. And I think that was initially based on the fact of being a Manxman that he was, as he would himself say, not English. And then, as you said at the very beginning, having working-class parents and being a scholarship boy, moving into a world where many of the other people had had more advantages in their background than that. So though he had this cumulative set of successes and honours and positions and so on, that feeling that he was someone who had come from the edge and remained in some way a little bit on the edge. I think it temperamentally suited him. It gave him gave a bit of space for him to be a little more sardonic or ironic at the expense of the world that he'd moved into, which he did fully in lots of ways embrace, but from which he also wanted to position himself as, as standing a little apart from. And that made him a better critic, presumably, to have that slightly detached point of view. Yes, I don't know whether that, in, in, in a sociological sense, it did. I mean, I think one of the things that is striking about his criticism when you look at a, a lot of it uh, is that he's not writing as a fervent partisan most of the time. He's, not, he's certainly not pushing a particular methodology or school. There's a certain Catholicity of taste to it. So uh, I think that helped his criticism no end. Now, whether that, that, that ability to be... Um, open to a whole range of types of writing and approaches to writing, whether that was connected at all to this cultivated sense of being something of, a, of an outsider or a marginal figure, I'm not quite sure. But I think it, I think that certainly that that that, that uh, sense of of a perspective that was was kind of warm and welcoming to literature but wasn't the prisoner of any one form of it or any one approach to it. It, it was a, capable of responding to all kinds and types of writing. Uh, that was certainly one of his great strengths as a critic. Yeah, because his range is is remarkable, isn't it? From the from the Bible through Shakespeare to contemporary fiction, and he didn't. He sort of appeared to be to, able to take an interest in everything, well, and but also never being I don't know lost to reverence somehow that some. Yeah, that's exactly, that's a very good phrase. I mean, he was never lost to reverence. Even there were figures, of course, he wanted to uh, very strongly recommend. I mean, he, uh, for example, he probably did more than any single critic to make Wallace Stevens well-known and accepted in Britain, I think. He was always a, a great admirer of 
John Donne and of Milton. He, the other end of the spectrum, he wrote very enthusiastically more than once about Philip Roth as a novelist. So there were there were figures he wanted to um, commend and commend to other people. But no, I don't think he didn't come with a kind of bended knee before any of these sorts of figures, even the ones he favoured. And, and that quietly, slightly ironically dispassionate assessment just always remains uh, colouring his tone. Another 20th century writers, B.S. Johnson and Penelope Fitzgerald, have sort of very different in their, although, well, in some ways, different, in some ways, perhaps more similar than they at first appear. He also championed. Yes, I, I mean, I think it, 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 more generally it's true that he's he's interested in any writing that, as it were, reveals the, the, the potential, the openness of literature. He's not so interested in people who, um, in one way or another, plough an already well-tilled furrow. It made him really quite sympathetic to some of the more experimental, Johnson would be a good example, more experimental writers. And similarly, I think in dealing with critical approaches, he was temperamentally antipathetic to anything that was too rigid or closed down possibilities. We can't read this or it doesn't work like that. He, and, and much more sympathetic to approaches which allowed the literary work, the literary object, to kind of open out fully before it and then to respond to it as it was. Um, and again, I think that, which is not quite the same as the Catholicity of his range, this is something more to do with a certain, I think, a certain admiration for and, and a certain responsiveness, certainly a kind of responsiveness to the inexhaustible power of writing to open out and to open out new and further meanings within itself and to use forms to um, effect or reinforce certain meanings and certain forms of affect. So all of that fascinated him. And the more open and the more multiple those could be, I think, the more he responded to it. In the preface to the sense for an ending, he, he said the purpose of this book being rather to make suggestions to initiate discussion than settle any of the problems it raises. And that seems to me characteristic of of all his writing and you know, of his approach generally it was about initiating discussion and he never wanted to settle a problem no no I, I think that's right and, and a lot of his writing even in the books I mean it's true of that book as of romantic image that I mentioned earlier they're quite short books um, he mostly didn't go for the sort of academic blockbuster and then of course all the essays are inevitably and necessarily suggestive in that way and that, that suited him very well what was it about the sense of an ending that made it such an enduring piece of criticism. I was certainly reading it 30 years later as an undergraduate. Yes, it's a, not an easy book in some ways. Um, a lot goes by very quickly. It's quite a short book, as I said. Frank had got very interested in what it became fashionable to call narratology, um, how a narrative is constructed. And then he moved out from that to reflect really, I think, on how we handle our understanding of the passage of time. Uh, how we give it a shape and almost without being aware of it, even in, in, in ordinary everyday exchanges, give a beginning and an end to things. And so he started to explore the ways in which different forms of literature, different forms of writing more generally do that and developed, I think one part of it that was particularly influential, developed this distinction between things like myth, 
which attempt to give a kind of clothed, rounded shape to time. It comes to some kind of end. And fiction, which is about living with the open-endedness of time, exploring ways in which we make it intelligible, but without ever, as it were, wholly cutting it off at the, at the end. There's no more to be said. Probably one of Frank's cardinal responses to literature that he thought was really good literature, that it always left something more to be said in some way. It provoked more things. And I think it was explorations of that kind which meant that not only literary critics, but, for example, some people working in historiography got quite interested in the book as illuminating some of the organisational forms in works of history, which didn't all have to have the most sort of straightforward A to B narration, but at the same time were nonetheless handling our expectation that things would go from some early state to some later state, and that would be an intelligible narrative. And I think, I think it was the exploration of that that enabled an awful lot of people, maybe in a way, to find their own interest in the book very characteristic, I think, of his work that uh, he didn't always, if you like, spell out all its implications as a programme that others should follow. He threw out some very fertile suggestions and then others took them in their own way. And I think that book would be a very good example of that. I was watching on YouTube the other day, there's an interview that he did on the BBC with Iris Murdoch where they discuss the relationship between philosophy and fiction and the similarities and differences. In a sort of television programme, it's quite hard to imagine being broadcast today, even on, even on BBC Four, as it were. Today our novelist is Iris Murdoch. She's a professional philosopher as well as a novelist, and although the two activities are very different, being a philosopher does affect what she says about books, as I think you'll see. You'll notice that we don't say much at all about her life, but get straight on to this question of philosophy and novel writing. Both deal with human nature, though with different tools. And if one person does both things, they're bound to get involved in interesting ways. Miss Murdoch, it's not altogether common for the same person to be philosopher and novelist. Are the two tasks fully compatible? Well, they're compatible, except in the sense that one has a limited amount of time, and they're both potentially very full-time jobs. Um, I mean, you've written extensively about the, the commercialisation, if that's the right word, of higher education in, in Britain over the last 20 years or however long it is. Is a career like his possible today with the demands being placed, especially on younger academics? A young academic at Reading, would they have time to appear on the radio and, do, and write for the spectator and all the rest of it? Well, it, it, it's a good question. And of course, uh, on the other side of that, the, the world of literary journalism is not as it was in, in that day, too. I mean, some of these journals have closed down, and some of the broadsheets, for example, which he wrote for quite a lot, carry much less by way of uh, book reviewing and discussing the books generally. So I, I think there would be some squeezing on both sides of that career split, as it were. On the other hand, of course, it has to be said that in a curiously twisted way, Academics are at the moment under a lot of pressure to show the impact of their work. So if they could implausibly persuade a BBC TV producer to do a programme where they interview the modern equivalent of 
uh, Iris Murdoch, they would actually get a lot of brownie points for it in their university. So in a way, you know, these things have happened in both directions. When Frank was first writing for a more general audience, there would have still been older and more traditional academics in universities who disapproved of this. So it was a very vulgar activity and, and you shouldn't be doing it. As I say, things have changed that it would be quite difficult to have Frank's career now. But on the other hand, possibly, for not so good reasons, uh, things have changed in the other direction, that academics are under quite a lot of pressure to address other audiences. Uh, and even if it wouldn't be in the form of book reviews, I think often more now in forms of things online, public lectures, organising events and so on, but still connecting with a non-academic audience, there would be some of that. So almost every dimension, really, what I think I'm saying is every dimension of the context in which Frank worked and had his career has changed, but perhaps not all the changes have been in the same direction. I mean, also in terms of the literature that he wrote about, the, the demands of academic specialisation now, would it be possible to, to write about Shakespeare and about the Bible and about 20th century writers and to have that sort of that sort of range within academic writing? Is that possible now? Yeah, well, I think it's important about Frank that he, in academic terms, began as an early modernist, an expert on the 16th and 17th century. And he never lost that expertise. I mean, he carried on writing really very, very knowledgeably and authoritatively about um, the literature of the 16th and 17th century, obviously, including Shakespeare and Dunn and Milton and so on. And I think that's an important element in someone having a, a, a certain kind of standing, that if they forfeit their academic uh, credentials entirely, as it were, then within academia they start to receive much less respect. But possibly also they seem, in a curious way, less... Um, in demand outside because they no longer carry with them any of the authority of scholarly achievement. They, they perhaps have turned themselves into almost full-time journalists. So in Frank's case, he did range widely. That's quite true. And when he did, he did it in a very scholarly way. I mean, he was remarkably learned about the whole business of um, the exegesis of the Bible and the hermeneutic tradition and all of that, uh, even though that was not his initial training. But as I say, he, he, he always had an area which was his absolute specialty. And in the early stages of his career, it was work in those areas that really got him his initial jobs. Maybe some prominent figures these days, once they feel they are fully established, maybe one or two American professors, for example, who write quite widely, could be seen to be doing something similar. I don't say that they're in any way... Uh, like Frank in personality or as critics or in their careers. But, I mean, if you think of people as different as Harold Bloom or Stephen Greenblatt, these are people who write about a very wide range of literature, having established an academic base, as it were. So I don't think it's uh, entirely out of the question even now. And, of course, in his last, I think it was his last book, there wasn't a collection of essays that Shakespeare's language, he re returned, well, not that he'd ever left, but it's to the to the 16th century and to, and to those questions which he never stopped thinking about. No, that's right. And, and also, um, of course, he'd done uh, another aspect of the <laughs> what Levis called the higher navying of uh, English studies in doing some big editorial things. Uh, what, in fact, 
brought him academic attention before the publication of Romantic Image, which I mentioned earlier, was that he did an edition of The Tempest, Shakespeare's Tempest, which was an exceptionally learned edition. It had appendices on lots of material about 16th century history and the discovery of the New World and other things, belief systems about the cosmos, as well as um, doing the kind of minute textual editing that those editions require. So there really wasn't, wasn't an aspect of the professional side of the trade that he didn't do. And he produced editions of Dunn as well, didn't he, and, and many others. And then, and he was the general editor of it's called Oxford Modern Authors, was that what it was called? The- yes, there, there he was more, of course, in the role of commissioning others to do it. Although, talking of his editing roles, by the way, of course, one thing um, that we ought to mention is his role in being general editor of the Fontana Modern Masters series, because... Though I'm <laughs> about 30 years younger than Frank, I'm old enough to remember the impression of those brightly coloured books in the 70s and how they extended our sense of cultural range uh, really very considerably. And it was an enterprise you know, that I think showed some of Frank's characteristic preoccupations. He wanted them to be very high quality, wanted to get the right people to write on individual authors, and he wanted to bring in names, especially non-British names, to a more general audience. And who who were the, some of the people that it, that series introduced to, to English readers? Well, um, I mean, some were figures like Lukács, slightly older names like Saussure, um, figures of a different type altogether like Popper, Karl Popper. It had a wide range. They weren't by any means even predominantly literary I think you'd have to say there were more theoretical and philosophical um, types of figures. And that was related, presumably, to his what he did at UCL with changing the syllabus and introducing the graduate seminars where some of these figures were, were discussed and thought about and taken seriously in a way that they hadn't been in England up to that point. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, uh, that seminar was um, in the late 60s and early 70s. And at that point... The, some of these figures, particularly in relation to structuralism and what later became post-structuralism, were very little known in Britain. And I think he was he was very open and receptive to seeing what was of interest in their work. And in a figure like Bart, for example, he, he found something really quite sympathetic, a playful, open, kind of open-textured engagement with literature. As many people have noticed, in the late 80s and into the 90s, he actually became much more critical of what he thought by then had become the the routinization of theory. What people were by that point using these ideas in ways that had become a bit hackneyed, and using them instead of really reading the literature, instead of engaging firsthand with the literature, they were moving around a whole set of theoretical counters and so on. And he wrote some some quite cross pieces in, in that period, the late eighties and early nineties attacking the form of theory that he thought had now established itself in academia. And it was an irony that, of course, no no irony was lost on him, really, and it was an irony not lost on him, that he had played such an important part, really, in introducing these 15, 20 years before. But, of course, it is, in a sense, consistent with his critical intelligence that he was interested in them, in theory, when it was a way of opening up ways of thinking about literature. And when he saw it becoming a way of closing down thinking about literature, he, that's when he reacted 
against it. Yes, I think I think that's right. It's, it's certainly not any case uh, some people have wanted to represent it as somebody going from, as it were, a radical earlier period of his life to a more conservative or reactionary later one. I don't think that was the case. But also I think it is, in, in Frank's case, that he had very little time for the what you might call the routinization of academic life. And so the more that this sort of theory seemed to be used for the purposes of career-making and grant-getting and position-taking in ways that weren't really to do primarily with responding to and writing about literature, the less he liked it. And I think that was part of what uh, fueled some of the animus of those later pieces. It should be said that he had been a hard-working professor in the various jobs he took on with Manchester and Bristol and UCL. Um, so he, he did do quite a lot of administration, and it meant you know sitting on a whole range of committees to represent his department as well as doing things internally in the department. And he took on quite a few broadly public service roles like that with the Arts Council and the Poetry Society and so on. So it wasn't that he wasn't willing to get his hands dirty on some of the necessary business. But I think it was the the intellectual vulgarization of something when it becomes a kind of academic industry that he found very, very antipathetic. Stefan Collini, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. After Frank Kermode died in August 2010, Mary Kay Wilmers, the editor of the LRB, wrote a piece about him. Papers speak through their writers, she said. And of all the London Review's writers... Frank Kermode was the one through whom we spoke most often and most eloquently. Eloquently. Was that the right word? Not really, she continued. Frank's writing was so much more exact, more stylish, more patient, more ironic, more playful, more attentive, more cunning, more cagey than eloquence can suggest. Here she is now, in conversation with Andrew O'Hagan, about Frank Kermode and the London Review of Books. Do you remember when you first met Frank? No, not not exactly. I would have met him with Carl Miller. They were old friends, stroke enemies. And didn't Carl inherit Frank's job at UCL? Yes, he did. So they were both slightly sly and malign about each other. And Frank was, in any case, quite malign. We used to call him SSF, Sly Sir Frank. Because what he would do was he would write a review of someone's book and the person would read it once and think, oh, that's very nice. And then they'd look at it again and realize it wasn't at all nice. But Frank had a way, that was the slice of Frank. He had a way of doing that, of making one think one was okay and then finding that one wasn't. And my only experience of that was he reviewed a book in which I had an essay and he mentioned everyone's essay apart from mine. And I would have thought that just out of politeness or something, because it was near the beginning of the LRB and because it would be normal to find some way of mentioning the piece by the person who'd commissioned you to write the review in the first place. But no, in Frank's case, that's exactly to, to show you that there's nothing special about you, or indeed, if special, the wrong way. His writing was always very clear, so unpretentious, and it's strange that you don't actually know what he's saying until you've read it more than once, although 
it's so clear you wouldn't think you needed to read it more than once. I mean, that's just in some cases. He could also, he could write about anything. He could write about the new sensation among novelists, like the Scottish writer Alan Warner. But he could also write about the Old Testament equally. Tell me off for not knowing how to pronounce Josephus when I said Josephus. I'd wondered for a long time who this Josephus was, but he was so admonishing when he told me off. And with the Warner example, the piece that he wrote was a kind of masterpiece of bafflement. I mean, that's actually quite stylish for the sort of, you might argue, for the most, uh, the foremost literary intelligence of his time to write an essay about being baffled by a novel. Yeah, but that would be Frank's way of putting it down as well. What someone might write it as, as being genuine bafflement or expressing his views without malice, but not in Frank's case. And then, of course, there's the fact that he started the paper. The paper was his idea. So we owe him a lot. Could you say more about that? Just tell that story. Well, in 1979, when the paper started, it started because the TLS was on lockout. There was a strike at the Times and none of the papers, none of the Times newspapers were appearing, including the TLS. And Frank wrote a piece in The Observer the first Sunday of that, saying that in New York, when that had happened, they'd started a new newspaper to plug the gap, but that in England we were too idle and unimaginative to do anything. So then the New York Review, that stung the New York Review, and they started our paper to fill that gap. But that was Frank's idea, and so he was always close to the paper. I imagine that the fact that Frank was connected with the CIA, with the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which was a CIA outfit, and the fact that the LRB was a leftish paper, the contradiction, you imagine, would have been something that quite pleased Frank, though he wouldn't say so, or perhaps he would say so. You'd never know. Well, he was always quite upset if any of us referred to Encounter magazine and his editorship, co-editorship of it, during a period when it was funded, as it were, at one remove by the CIA. He presented himself as someone who didn't like to be reminded of it. Do you think that was a pose? I imagine he didn't like to be reminded of it, it um, because it was a, a fallibility, as it were. But he wasn't proud of it, though he might have been secretly quite proud of the fact that he was... No, that he was sneaky, and the fact that he was successfully sneaky was <laughs> probably particularly appealing to him. So in his memoir, Not Entitled, he denied that he knew that it was funded by the Congress for Cultural Freedom. Do you think he was lying? Fibbing, perhaps? Not lying? It's an ideal opportunity for someone like him, really. I mean, he was a great asset to the paper, too, his, his range. The fact that he wrote so well was 
an example to other people, I mean, something to emulate from our point of view. But then he would go the other way too. And when we we asked Alvarez's wife to review Alvarez's book about divorce, that's the wife whom he divorced, we asked. And Frank was outraged. Why? She thought it was such a underhand thing to do was it's exactly the sort of thing he would have done and profess great innocence. To Carl's credit, he didn't profess great innocence. He just said straightforwardly, why shouldn't she have her say? Which was my view too. So Frank could become quite high-minded and a bit kind of humorless yeah. about things like that. Yeah. Well, pseudo-high-minded. Yeah. And what was Carl's response? Outrage. I mean, I don't really remember, but he would have been outraged and on feminist grounds. I don't know. I mean, he threatened to cut Frank off. I mean, he assumed that was Did the he? end of their friendship in the letter he wrote to him. Did he? Um, yeah, I'm not surprised. Well, they were both men of temperament. The dispute between him and between Frank and Carl, there was a certain amount of posturing and a certain amount of real feeling. He once said, in the, when they were not getting on, the phone rang in the office and he said to whoever was supposed to be answering the phone, if that's Frank Commode, don't answer it. Mary Kay Wilmers talking to Andrew O'Hagan. You can read Stefan Collini's piece on early Kermode in the current issue of the LRB, along with Stephen Shapin on Joseph Banks, the second part of The Suitcase by Francis Stoner Saunders and John Lanchester on eSports. A selection of Frank Kermode's essays for the LRB, with an introduction by Michael Wood and an afterword by Mary Kay Wilmers, is available from the London Review Bookshop or online at the LRB store. And all of Kermode's essays for the paper are available in our online archive. Ursula Cray's review of her ex-husband Al Alvarez's book on divorce can also be found in the LRB archive. And the exchange of letters between Carl Miller and Frank Kermode over that review is reprinted in An Incomplete History of the LRB, published last year and available from the London Review Bookshop or the LRB store. For more on the question of encounter and CIA funding, you can read Edward Said's 1999 review of Francis Stoner Saunders's book Who Paid the Piper and the correspondence that followed, also in the LRB online archive. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to LRB pieces relevant to this episode in the description below.